This morning, I want to talk to you about how to find the love of your life. You heard me. How to find the love of your life. You see, most of us, if not all of us, are looking for some form of love. A record 3.6 million people tuned in to watch the finale of Love Island. See, there's something about love that fascinates us. 85,000 people applied to be contestants on Love Island. That's more than the number of people who applied to Cambridge and Oxford universities combined. It's quite a stat. Dr. Sue Johnson, an author, clinical psychologist, researcher, and professor, writes in her book the following. For better or for worse, in the 21st century, a love relationship has become the central emotional relationship in most people's lives. One reason for that is because we increasingly live in social isolation. Most of us no longer live in supportive communities with our birth families or our childhood friends close at hand. We work longer and longer hours, we commute farther and farther distances, and thus have fewer and fewer opportunities to develop close relationships. Inevitably, we ask our lovers for the emotional connection and sense of belonging that my grandmother could get from an entire village. Compounding in this is the celebration of romantic love fostered by our popular culture. Movies, TV soap operas, and dramas saturate us with images of romantic love as the be-all and end-all of relationships. Newspapers, magazines, and TV news avidly report on the never-ending search for romance and love among actors and celebrities. So it should come as no surprise that people recently surveyed in Western societies rate a satisfying love relationship as their number one goal, ahead of financial success and ahead of a satisfying career. When I was growing up, my dad, who was super strict and very traditional, basically told me that I was not allowed to date anyone until I completed my university education. So I was warned not to even look at a boy until I turned 21. So naturally what followed was from the ages of 21 to my early 30s, I found myself in a series of successive long-term relationships looking for a kind of love that really couldn't be found. And I guess in many ways, I was looking for the love of my life. In John 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at the well and tells her everything she ever did in her life, including the fact that he knew all about her previous relationships. Jesus crosses all boundaries to find her, to speak to her, and to offer her something. Instead of receiving judgment and rejection, he offers her a living water that will quench her deepest thirst, her deepest longing, and her deepest desires. You see, we're designed and hardwired for love. And I think we use this phrase, the love of my life, to depict something that we think will be able to save us. Save us from ourselves, save us from our problems, save us from the reality of our lives, save us from boredom. But I honestly don't think that the love of your life 
is romantic in nature. I think that the type of love that we really need deep down is that described in 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And this is the translation from the message. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously, because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. But friends, that's exactly who we are, children of God. And that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him and in seeing him become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. As we unpack this passage this morning, my prayer is that God would open our eyes to the reality of his love. And we're gonna explore three things together. We're gonna to look at what it means to look at his love, to be defined by his love, and then to be transformed by his love. To look at his love, to be defined by his love, and then to be transformed by his love. So look at his love. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. John, in writing this letter, when he gets this particular point, he starts to get emotional and passionate. It's almost a bit of an outburst. I don't know how many of you have been in love, but love has a way of making you emotional. Does anyone remember when Tom Cruise went on Oprah years ago and he got up on the couch and he started jumping up and down because he had appeared to have fallen in love? Love has that kind of effect on people. But here, John is telling us to look at his love. How do we look at his love? The only way to look at God's love is through the lens of the cross. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Look at the son. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserved so that we could receive God's love. Look at his love, look at it, ponder it, study it, gaze at it, think about it. It may be free for us to receive, but it was costly to God. I'm not sure on average how much time we spend thinking about God's love, but that's what John is telling us to do. You see, God's love is not restrained, held back, stingy or minimal. It's extravagant, generous, unconditional, unfading, and it never wanes. 
when you go to an Italian restaurant and you order a plate of pasta and the waiter comes with the block of cheese, unless you're lactose intolerant, you'll say, yes, please. And if the waiter is generous, he'll shave and he'll shave and he'll shave and he'll shave. I personally like it when it's not just cheese but truffles, but that's just me. But God's love is poured out on us that generously. And when you fully understand that generosity, it blows you away. It blows John away. It blows me away. And we start to get a bit emotional. And what's beautiful about this love is that it's not contractual and it's not transactional. It's not like we perform and then we get to receive. It's quite one-sided. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why do we find it so hard to believe in God's love, to look at his love? Sometimes I think it's pride. I think sometimes we just wanna prove we're worthy of God's love before we're willing to receive it. Sometimes it's just the harshness of life that we've been through so much pain and hurt that we struggle to trust in God's love, let alone believe in it. We've been so disappointed, disheartened and disillusioned that we find it hard to believe that God loves us. And sometimes I think it just takes time. It takes time to come to a fuller understanding of the greatness and the extent of God's love. I grew up in London and I was raised in a Christian home and I went to Sunday school, I went to youth group and I became a teenager. I became a Christian as a teenager. I also became a teenager. <laughs> but in my 20s, as I entered professional working life, I started to go through a season of really being challenged about whether my faith was my own or whether it was something I just kind of inherited from my parents and my family. The challenges of working life really forced me to confront my faith. And I would say that the full reality of God's love, God's unconditional love, that going from head knowledge to heart knowledge really only came about in my adult life. I had heard the parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke all my life. But I've never really understood it or grasped it grasp the extent of God's love until I had my own homecoming moment. I moved to New York City when I was 21 and I lived there for 10 years. And during my time there, I plowed myself into my career. And when a relationship that I was in crumbled right in front of my very eyes, my dad had to fly out to New York City to take care of me. And I remember my dad telling me that it was time to come home. And I just resisted because I didn't have a job in London. I didn't know where I was gonna live in London. But he just said to me, it's time to come home. Let us take care of you. And so I did. And it was in that moment that I finally understood how the Father is filled with compassion. When he sees us, he runs to us when we come home and he throws his arms around us. This kind of love is extravagant. Look at his love. 
And the second thing I'd like to talk about is being defined by his love. So you look at his love and then you're defined by his love. John writes, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. And he says again, but friends, that's exactly what we are, children of God. When something is repeated in the Bible, it's usually repeated for emphasis and for a reason. So this becomes now a question of identity what you are defined by. Identity is where you get your sense of self and your sense of worth from. It's where your core trust comes from in life. And in life, we wear lots of different hats and we have lots of different roles in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities. Your identity is what you trust. It's what you live for. It's where you get your sense of security and significance. For example, you can work But if your main source of security in life is to have a good career, you don't just work. Your work is your identity. So who are you? I was listening to a podcast by Tim Keller recently on this issue of identity, and it was fascinating. Because he was saying that without our permission and without us even knowing it, every culture imposes an identity formation process on us, its members. And as a Christian living in the contemporary world, we hold with our left hand our Christian beliefs. And with our right hand, we hold the culture which shapes our identity. And Tim Keller says this, to be a Christian is not just to believe the gospel, but to short circuit the modern identity formation that happens in culture because we live in the world. We want to live into and out of our identity in Christ. And I know what it feels like to have a bit of an identity crisis, um, or to hold one identity with one hand and to hold another in the other. I was raised in a very traditional culture where my family played a pivotal role in what I would do with my life. And my identity was heavily rooted in pleasing my parents. And being born and raised in England and growing up here, while being raised in a very traditional Chinese home, but also seeing a very Western individualistic culture that was liberal, I often felt like I was bridging two cultures. And I spent a lot of time feeling really torn about what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to live. The thing is, as we read 1 John 3, it's a stark reminder to us that when we become a Christian and when we decide to follow Jesus, our identity is completely changed. We are now children of God. It's who you really are, first and foremost. Before you identify with being white, Asian or black, professional or working class, a man or a woman, rich or poor, married or single, divorced or widowed, parent or childless, we identify as children of God. And that's a really powerful thing. Because it's not just a new name that you call yourself or a label. It's a legal, spiritual, relational and eternal identity. Many of us are tired of labels. 
We're tired of the pressures and demands that modern culture puts on us. You only have to look at Instagram every day to see the subtle yet constant barrage of messaging telling us what you need to be and who you need to be in order to be loved and accepted. Our modern identity is fragile and it makes us a complete dream for marketers and advertising. 50 years ago, the way you would sell a product would be to prove that it was useful. Nowadays, you sell a product by saying that hip, glamorous, cool, and trendy people buy this product, so you should buy it to brand yourself so that you can be perceived and received in a certain way. Don't let the culture tell you who you are. Let God tell you who you are. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God right now. It's not something you look forward to one day in the future. That's a reality for you to take hold of right now, right here. You are God's treasured possession. God has everything and he needs nothing and he calls you his treasured possession. I just came back from a 10-day trip to Seoul, South Korea. And a very close friend of mine who lives in New York City, she's a Korean-American, and she said to me, why don't you come and join me on my family holiday? And so she invited me, I flew out to Seoul, and it was an amazing trip. Her family came, they took me, they drove me around in their car, they showed me all the cool places in Gangnam, and they fed me very, very well. I mean, I ate some of the best fried chicken, Korean fried chicken, and some of the best Korean barbecue that I've ever eaten in my entire life. But tagging along to someone's family holiday is not the same as legal adoption. I don't expect them to keep a house, a room for me in Seoul. Come, come stay, you've got a room. Legal adoption is something entirely different. When someone is legally adopted, they find a new home. They find a new sense of belonging and they find a new identity. You are a child of God and you're adopted into God's family. And God says, you are mine. You're a part of my family now and forever. Galatians 3.26 says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Galatians 4.6-7 says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. Let God tell you who you are. Be defined by his love. Look at his love. Be defined by his love. Now be transformed by his love. John says, and that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him and in seeing him become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming, stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own.
In verse two and further along in the passage, John talks to us about what we are becoming. We're to grow in resembling God as his children. As a child, you're supposed to resemble your parents. I hate to admit it, but the older I get, the more I see that I look like my mom. <laughs> Sorry, mom. God has made us his children in a whole new way. And being fathered by God means that our new selves cannot continue as before. Something in us changes. We're transformed by this love. There's a sense of wonder and amazement. A child is filled with wonder. It's a miracle, this grace and mercy. Who am I? that the highest king should welcome me. You just can't see the same if you've truly experienced God's love and his grace. You see, the opposite of love isn't hate. It's actually indifference. If you don't love someone, you don't really care what happens to them. It's just not your problem. I just don't care. But when you love someone, you care about the person they're becoming God loves you. He cares about what you're becoming. He cares about your character. He cares about how you live your life. That's all part of his love. He doesn't call you his child and then have no concern about what you're becoming, how you live your life and what you do. He's totally invested in you. And he wants to know and he's interested in who you're becoming. We're called to be holy, just as he is holy. And we don't act to earn our identity. We operate from a place of grace. So we know who we are, much loved sons and daughters of the Most High King. Live like the child that you are. Live like the child that you are. And there's work for us to do. With these privileges also comes responsibility. We have a part to play. We have a confidence as children of God that can never be shaken or ever taken away. But we don't become complacent. God tells us that we're his children and we need to live as if we belong in this family and not in the world. What does that look like? What does it mean to be part of his family? Are we seeking God daily and meditating on his love? Do we pray? Do we read scripture? Do we study his word? Do you carve out time in your busy life to think about God, to ponder on his love and just to spend time with him? Do you obey God's commands? Are you intentional about putting things in your life that are gonna keep you accountable? Are you in fellowship with other Christians? Are you part of a connect group? Do you talk to others about how you're doing spiritually? Are you sharing the reason for the hope that you have? Are you finding ways to love and to serve others? Are our lives marked by freedom, confidence, courage, and hope? Or are our lives marked by anger, boredom, worry, and anxiety? God's ultimate goal in life is to make us like Jesus. 1 John 3, verses 16 and 18. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. When you love someone, you listen to what they say. You cling on to their every word. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. See, God calls us to emulate his son, to love each other, to serve each other, to lay down our lives for each other, to love and to give in a way that this world will never understand. If you're defined by his love and transformed by his love, don't be surprised when the world doesn't recognize who you are. When it doesn't understand why you choose to live in this counter-cultural way. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar and theologian writes this. God's love is revealed precisely in sending Jesus, his son, into the world to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. When you stand at the foot of the cross, gazing on the length to which God's love has gone for us, it's impossible not to sense the power and the possibilities within that love. This is a force that has changed the world and could still change the world if only the followers of Jesus would really come on board with it. You see, loving others isn't easy. Laying down your life for others isn't easy. And we can't love within ourselves. We can't rely on our own abilities. I know that I am selfish to the core. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit within us to make his love, not just a, something you know in your head, but you need this love to become a reality in your heart. And it's by his spirit that we're empowered to live and love in the way that God desires. There is power and possibility in God's love. The power comes from God and not us. And that's where our hope lies. I'm not gonna lie to you. I adored my father. And it's really hard for me to speak on a passage about the father's love without thinking a lot about my dad. You see, I moved back to London after spending 10 years in New York City in 2013. And within a year of moving back to London, um, my dad was diagnosed with advanced stage lung cancer and he died 10 months late at the end of 2015. He was, he was 64 years old. And I remember on the day my dad was diagnosed, I sat on my bed, completely inconsolable. I turned to him in floods of tears and I said, please don't leave me. When my father passed away, my heart was so broken. 
and my life felt like it was in a really dark place. It was hard to have any hope. I don't even know how I really got through that period of my life. My heart was so broken by grief that it was hard for me to believe that anything good could ever happen to me ever again. I wrestled, I was angry. It was so painful. And all I can say is that while I lost my earthly father, I know that my heavenly father has never left my side. That's the promise that I cling on to. I know that Jesus has experienced every form of suffering on this earth and that he's completely familiar with what I feel and with what I experience, even when I can't articulate it in words. Jesus was unafraid to enter our humanity and our suffering. That is love. I'd spent so much time in my adult life looking for love in all of the wrong places. And the love I think I'd always needed was right there in front of my very eyes. And regardless of what your experience has been in life, with your earthly father, or just in life generally, this morning, do you know you have a heavenly father who loves you? You have infinite worth and value to God. Just look at the cross. Call off the search. The love you've been looking for all your life is right here, waiting for you. The Father loves you so much. There's so much power and possibility in God's love. He can rebuild broken things. He can redeem dead situations. And he can breathe hope and life into hopeless and lifeless situations. We need to cling on to hope. Hope that one day Jesus will return and we're going to see him face to face and be like him. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That's who you really are.